It was about a month ago uh, that we had our spring break trip uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, Noah, Lily, Jesse, and I, we got to go down. We met up with RUF at NYU. We partnered with uh, Grace Mosaic Church uh, in Northeast D.C. But on one of the last days of our trip, uh, we got to go to the Smithsonian African uh, American Museum uh, right there on the mall. Uh, the museum details the long legacy of hatred towards black men and women in this country, even as it celebrates the beauty and the strength and the shared humanity uh, of our black brothers and sisters. The museum begins with a descent into darkness, quite literally. Uh, you take an escalator into an abyss, sort of like three floors down. It's as if you're entering into a hell of sorts. This is where the museum begins, uh, with the hell that was American slavery. And you walk through it, sort of, ex- sort of taking it in, and um, you walk through time, as it were. And as you walk through time, you kind of rise a level, but you're still underground, still in a kind of a hell. The second floor, it's the hell of the Jim Crow South, the lynchings, and the era of segregation. On this floor, there's a segregated rail car, and next to it, sort of in front of it, there's a long lunch counter. You're invited to sit at it. The, the counter's maybe as long as this room. And on the other side of the counter is a huge movie screen, again, about the size uh, of this room. As you take your seat at the lunch counter, and you look at the screen, you see footage in black and white of college students, black and white college students sitting at counters just like the one that you're sitting in. These students are sitting in the whites-only section. They're asking for the same kind of service that you and I would receive. And as the video rolls, you see these college students ripped from their chairs and kicked in the ribs. You can't hear it, but you know that they're screaming curses at them. Milkshakes are being poured on their heads. But these college students do not strike back. It's not because they don't know how to. It's because they're determined not to. They're determined not to repay evil for evil, but to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When they're cursed, they bless. When they're mocked, love is on their lips. When milkshakes are poured on their heads, they refuse to retaliate. And their nonviolent loving response shames their enemies in a redemptive kind of way. Right? Their nonviolent protest at the lunch counter exposes the ugliness of racism, even as it reveals their strength. The strength to absorb blows, right? to not strike back, and to love thy enemy. As you sit at the lunch counter and you watch these college students, like not much older, not much younger than you all, the question arises, where did this strength come from? Where did they get the resources to be able to do that? To face an angry mob, to be beaten and not to hit back. The fact of history, which this museum shows, is that most of the civil rights leadership was forged and formed in the moral ecology of the black church. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't grown in a vacuum. Right? That strength grew out of the black church. 
Students like these were formed in a university of beautiful resistance. Jesus was their rabbi. They are his pupils. They took seriously his teachings. In the house of Jesus and the school of beautiful resistance, they were taught to see themselves as they really are, men and women made in the image of God, and not just them, but their enemies too. Like you in this room, they were taught the same truths that we've gone through this semester. They, they learned Romans 5. They learned that Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, and that would inform how they would love their enemies too. They understood the universality of sin and the universal need for forgiveness. And they took these messages to heart, but then they took them to the lunch counter. Right? Truly, these students were living life in view of God's mercy. They were living in light of the gospel. And we come to tonight's text wanting to do the same. We want to live in the light of the gospel, too. And so I want you to hear what God has to say to us tonight. From Romans 12, verse 14, and then 17 to 21. You can follow along up here on the handout there on your table. Through the hand of Paul, God says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word, not mine. I'm going to ask him to help us uh, understand it tonight. Father, thanks for bringing us into the space, this beautiful uh, John Dewey Lounge. Uh, Lord, um, we come to the beauty of your word. And we ask that uh, you would make it beautiful to us. You would make this call uh, to loving our enemy something that is sweet to our ears and that actually warms our heart and that we would see is actually good, not just for us, but for the world. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is understanding and ready to receive and believe what it is you want to impress upon us tonight. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't need to convince you of this fact. I think you know it just as well as I do, that we live in a world full of evil and injustice. But what is to be our, uh, what is to be our response? I think verse 21 is our key verse for tonight. Right? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I like how that begins. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't give in to it. Don't surrender to it. Don't despair, but resist it. Right? Fight it. Overcome evil with good. The late British theologian, writer, C.S. Lewis, he called Christianity a fighting religion. Jesus hates evil and injustice. He fights it, and he wants us to fight it too. But this might raise some questions. Like, isn't Christianity supposed to be on the side of peace? And it is. 
Aren't Christians to pursue peace? We are. And isn't Jesus himself the Prince of Peace? And he is. We are to be a peace-loving people. But peace is not the same thing as passivity. We're to be nonviolent. But nonviolence is not the same thing as non-resistance. In a sermon entitled Mission in Conflict, Grace Mosaic pastor Russ Whitfield calls attention to what he calls necessary conflict. Something like John Lewis would call like good trouble. Russ says God's in conflict with all the forces that oppose the flourishing of his creation. Light opposes darkness. Life opposes death. Love opposes hatred. Hope opposes despair. He continues, The Lord is in conflict with everyone and everything that steals life and peace and joy from individuals and communities. And he concludes, If we are people possessed of the same love, then we will enter into the same conflict. If we are people possessed of the same love, we will be drawn into the same conflict. Right, the Christian life is a life of beautiful resistance. It's actually a, a name that another pastor, a guy named John Tyson, gives to the church, right? The beautiful resistance, right? Christianity is a fighting religion. But how you fight the good fight matters. I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, people who in their fight against evil and injustice say and do evil, unjust things. People using hateful rhetoric and demonizing their opponents, again, in the name of justice or in the fight for justice. Using hateful rhetoric and demonizing people. Instead of attacking ideas, they attack the people who hold them. Listen, once you start calling people things like scum, trash, rats, roaches, dumb, deplorable, idiotic, and evil... It's easy to start treating them that way. The worst abuses in human history, like from the Holocaust all the way down, they all begin this way. They all begin with rhetorical and visual demonization, calling people stupid, making them look stupid, making them feel inferior as subhuman. And this kind of discourse that is intended to defame and dehumanize, it is everywhere in our, in our culture. I see it, I sense it, I think you do too. We see it in our politics, we see it in the halls of Congress, we see it on the, in the protests outside on the streets, we see it in our social media, we see it on late night TV. Y'all, when we cease to see each other as human beings, we move closer and closer to the abyss. It's not just demonization that we see, like as a response to evil and injustice. We also see cancellation. When you cancel somebody, we essentially say, you are so bad that I want no association with you. Or your ideas are so ugly that we can't even talk. 
you are essentially saying this person is not worth your time, energy, attention, or affection. That they're not worthy of your contact or community. They need to be cut off. And cancellation becomes actually a kind of murder. You're murdering people in your heart. You're pronouncing a kind of final judgment. This person is irredeemable. There is no room for this person to grow. There is no room for this person to ever change. There is no way this person will ever repent. There is no way we could ever be reconciled. Canceled. The ways of demonization and cancellation are at odds with the ways of Jesus. They are going in totally different directions. It's like saying, if you wanting to be a follower of Jesus and wanting to like demonize and cancel at the same time, it's like saying, I want to go east and west at the same time. You can't do it. And this, just the fact that Jesus is not down with either of these, is reason enough for Christians in the room to not employ these tactics in our fight against evil and injustice. But I realize that there might be Christians not in the room. So let me appeal to you. Even you have to admit there's got to be a better way. Even if it's like Jesus saying don't do this isn't enough reason, let's admit there's got to be a better way. When you demonize other people, you're filling yourself with hate. You're like a man trying to kill a bunch of rats by drinking rat poison. That doesn't work. Right? Similarly, when you cancel other people, you're not solving any problems. You're just pushing them into a corner. And there in the corner, grievances grow. Resentments grow. Hatred grows. And like a festering boil, that will eventually explode with new and awful power. You all, something much more, much greater is needed if we're going to adequately address evil and injustice in our age. We need better tools, better strategies than demonization and cancellation. What is needed is the kind of love that is exhibited by Jesus and that is on display at those lunch counters. It's a kind of love that can literally change the world. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In our remaining time tonight, I want to get, I want to get practical and I want to lay out some of the steps that, need for, that we need to sort of take in order to be able to do that. Because simply saying, okay, I'm not going to overcome evil. I'm just going to overcome evil with good. Like, you can't just walk out the door and just do that. Like, there's some steps that need, to, that need to happen before you're actually able to do that. You know what I mean? So what are they? I think step number one is this. We need to remember the gospel. If we are to do this, the first thing that we need to do is to remember the gospel. I think it is super important for us to see this passage in its context, which is Romans 12. We're in Romans 12 now, not Romans 1. If we read this passage tonight in Romans chapter 1, what we would have essentially is a moralistic religion that says, like, you need to love your enemies, and if you do, God will love you. But that's not at all what we have here in Romans. It's not at all the gospel. This comes 11 chapters later. For the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter, he's writing out in beautiful detail God's great love for us. How when we were his enemies, he died for us. How when we like rejected him and canceled him, he came after us. He didn't give up on us. 
When we're cursing him, he's blessing us. Right? When we hate him, he lays down his life for us. Like God loves his enemies. He loves us. And, and Paul takes 11 chapters to make that point. And it's on the heels of that, right, that he gives us these commands. In view of his mercy, right, in light of the gospel, do this. Christian ethics operates on this principle. Right? We love because he first loved us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We bless because we've been blessed. Right? We're always doing unto others as God has done unto us. This is the gospel ordering of things. The, the Christian ethic right, of loving neighbors, it's always based on the the imperatives of the Christian life, like the, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, like the love that neighbor, it's always comes on the heels of what God has done for us, right? So, number one, we need uh, to remember the gospel. Number two, you need to remember who you are. You need to remember who you are. Romans 12.3, a passage we looked at last week. Paul said, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. See, when we think straight and we're looking at ourselves in the mirror, like through the lenses of the Christian faith, the person that we see reflected back to us in the mirror That person, you, is made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Being made in the image of God means you have intrinsic dignity and worth, but it also means that you have a built-in calling. You were made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God. And living authentically means living in light of that truth. It means loving what God loves. It means hating what he hates. It means doing what he does because you're made in his image. And it's inauthentic to image anything or anyone else. You are made to imitate him, made to reflect him. And here's the thing. As you become more and more like Jesus, you become more and more your true self. More and more like him, more and more in some ways mysteriously like you at the same time. Here's how this relates to our conversation about evil and injustice. As we remember who we are as persons made in the image of God, we recognize that we are called to reflect and to imitate God in the world, which means that if God loves justice, we're going to love justice too. If God loves reconciliation, we're going to love reconciliation too. If God loves sinners but hates sin, we're going to follow suit. We're going to love the sinner and hate the sin. God being full of truth and grace means that we will be people full of truth and grace. Because as we go out into the world, we want to go out there like him. Because that's who we are. People made in his image. Step number three. Remember who they are too. 
You're made in the image of God, but so is your enemy. This is sometimes hard for me to sit with, if I'm being honest. There are people out there that I am inclined to hate. People who go into schools and kill a bunch of kids. Or ISIS terrorists. Or the Hitlers of the world and the Putins and the Pol Pots. I'm inclined to hate people like this. I'm inclined to hate other kinds of people too. I'm inclined to hate drug dealers who destroy our community. Or people who traffic human beings and sell them into modern-day slavery. Inclined to hate people who murder and who rape. It's easy for this list to grow long. But here's what I think God's trying to teach me. And I haven't, I'm not there yet, but I, I know that he wants to teach me these sorts of things. Instead of calling people evil, he wants me to call them image bearers who are doing evil, heinous things. And this is a subtle nuance, but I think it makes a big difference. Instead of demonizing people and calling them evil, God wants me to see these people as image bearers who are doing evil and heinous things. Because here's what happened when I sort of make that distinction. My anger shifts a little bit away from that person and it shifts towards the things that they're doing. I want the evil things that they're doing to stop. I want the evil systems that give rise to evil actions to be shut down. But when I say it like I've said it, if this is an image bearer who's doing heinous things, I want the evil to stop, but I want this person to be saved. I want their humanity to be restored. I want their their true humanity to come forward. It opens the, 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 the door in my heart a crack for redemption, for hope. And in some ways, God is protecting me. He's not just protecting my enemies from what I might want to do to them. He's protecting me from hate. This thing that will rot me out from the inside because I'm prone to it, as I'm sure you are as well, right? Right, to hate people who have opposing views or who are on the other side of the aisle or who are doing awful things, right? There's got to be ways for us to resist evil without trying to destroy image bearers. Y'all tracking? Remember the gospel. Remember who you are, but remember who they are too. Image bearers who may be doing evil, heinous things. Step four, be angry, but don't avenge. Here I'm sort of like alluding to verses 19 and 20 in our passage. Did you know that be angry is actually a command in the Bible? Like, God actually commands us to be angry. The, the, it's Ephesians 4, verse 26. He says, be angry, but don't sin. The reason why we're to be angry is because anger is it's an actual form of love. You only get angry about the things that you care about. If you don't love something, you're not angry about it. Right? Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And as Becky Pippert has written, right, the final form of hate is indifference. I don't give a rip. The suffering or whatever's happening out there doesn't phase me. You don't care. You don't love. God wants us to be loving people, which means he wants us to give a rip. And if we start caring about people, if we start caring about the planet, if we start caring about places, we're going to get angry 
as we see those people, places, and things threatened by evil and injustice, it will move you. A lot of us are just not moved, either because we're not paying attention or we just don't care. And God wants you to wake up and he wants you to feel more. Be angry, don't sin. I've mentioned him a lot tonight, MLK, uh, partly because he's, I mean, obviously he's one of the greatest modern day mentors we have for what it means to live this way and to love this way. The guy was nonviolent, but this this leader, um, he was probably one of the angriest persons on the planet at the time. He's nonviolent, but MLK was angry. He had to be. He was this way because he loved well. He loved his black brothers and sisters, which is why he was so angry when they were denied equal citizenship in this country and the basic dignities owed them as image bearers of God. He was angry, and rightfully so, that others were forced to sit in the back of the bus or to drink from a different water fountain. He was angry that police were not protecting people, but sometimes terrorizing them. I guarantee you, MLK was angry. He was angry because he cared. And it's this anger that was his energy that gave him the power and the motivation to take the courageous actions that he took. That holy, loving, righteous anger is what empowered him and others to march and protest and sit in and stand up to evil and injustice. Look, Jesus does not want to castrate you. He doesn't want to rob you of your anger. But he wants you to focus it and to channel it and to use it well and wisely, to aim it in the right directions, to use it constructively and not destructively. Be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't avenge. Be angry, but don't retaliate. You all tracking? In a 1957 sermon on loving your enemies, MLK says this, and I quote, There will come a time when the person who hates you most, the person who misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. And you must not do it. In other words, Do not enact revenge. Don't make them pay. But instead, seize that moment to do them good, to bless them. He says, and I quote, that is the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. It's the refusal to defeat any individual. And I love that definition. It's the refusal to defeat any individual. Do you know how prophetic that word is for our cultural moment? Where we're all trying to win and to chalk up points and defeat people and to make them look stupid. You all, we need this word. We need it. And here's the final step. You don't have to like your enemy to love your enemy. Because when it boils down to it, MLK just said it. 
We're not, love is not a feeling. It's, it's an action. When Jesus says love your enemy, he's not saying, hey, have warm, fuzzy feelings about the people who hate you. He's not saying that. He's saying do them good. I'm going to quote him again. MLK says this. There are a lot of people that I find difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like them. But Jesus says love them. And love is greater than like. Because love is the creative, redemptive goodwill toward all men. Like love is what we see in verse 20 of our passage. Instead of seeking revenge, instead of tit for tat, instead of paying people back, instead of defeating someone when we have the chance, we show them good. We give them food if they're hungry. We give them something to drink if they thirst. If they pour milkshakes on our heads, let's love them in such a way that we sort of put burning coals on theirs. That we love them in such a way that it will shame them in a redemptive sort of way that might lead them into some kind of repentance. Which brings us to our final and key verse for tonight, which I'll read one last time. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Y'all, there is so much evil and injustice out there. You and I are living in a culture that is forming us and conditioning us to hate. The headlines in the news are meant to spark your outrage. The angrier the posts on social media, the more likely you are to click it, the more likely you are to like it and to share it and to retweet it. Like pornography, outrage is one of those things that feels good initially, but over time begins to devour us from the inside out. Our culture of demonization and cancellation is doing just that. It is rotting us out, uh, or it is rotting us from the inside out. And Jesus wants to rescue us. He wants to rescue you. He doesn't want to simply rescue you from the penalty of your sins. He does that, of course, but he also wants you to, to rescue you from a diminished way of life. A life that adds to the darkness rather than peeling it away. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. So, RUF, friends here, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.